Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the next part of our procedural justice mini-series, I welcome Jo Millington, who shares her experience as a forensic scientist and explains what really happens when investigating a crime scene. This podcast contains graphic content and is not suitable for children. Some listeners may find some aspects of our conversation distressing. My name's Jo Millington. I'm a forensic scientist with a particular uh, specialism in bloodstain pattern analysis. And could you describe to me what you mean by blood pattern analysis? You know, it's a, it's a strange sort of line of work to be in, is it not? Maybe not for you. <laughs> well, no, it's my livelihood now. But um, so BPA, bloodstain pattern analysis, is essentially looking at the pattern of bloodstains that are created as a result of different actions. So if someone is bludgeoned to death using a, a weapon of type, then the bloodstains that are produced will form a pattern and those can be interpreted by the way that the stains appear or their um, association with the with the crime scene. And that's BPA, basically. OK, and what on earth led you to this career? What was the trajectory? You'll never open a newspaper and it's a here there's a job in BPA, it's kind of an area of forensic science um, that you specialise in. So, for example, when you start out a career as a forensic scientist, typically you're either a biologist or a chemist. And for my my, my particular journey was as a biologist and then I started to specialise. And when I did my initial training, um, I did some research out with uh, Miami-Dade police and in Miami, there was a guy there who is kind of a BPA specialist. He's an expert. He's been around for a number of years. And he he, he essentially said to me, Joe, if you make anything of yourself, <laughs> come back and see whether or not you'd like to do my BPA training course. So anyway, a few years later, I managed to get a, a job, my first job with Lothian and Borders Police. And it got to the point in my training where I needed BPA training and I rang the guy in Miami and I said, look, I'm, I'm ready for the course. And he said, wow, who are you? <laughs> no, he didn't. So he said, he said, Joe, come on the course. So I did the training course with him. He's the advisor to Dexter, actually, which is a quite a famous um, bloodstain pattern expert on the telly. But um, anyway, so I did my training with him and 
I was kind of sort of bitten from that point onwards, really. So the rest of my career, I I, I made choices that allowed me to specialise in bloodstains. And that included um, sort of taking specialist courses and such like. And now I train others, which, you know, is kind of full circle, really. Right. So if someone wanted to go into the line of work that you're in, in BPA in particular, they would have to train to be and do a degree or, a, a you know, what what hoops do you need to jump through in order to get to sort of where you are? Yeah, well, the, the standard career path really is to um, do an undergraduate degree. I did one in biology and then I, I chose to do a Master of Science in Forensic Science, although that's not absolutely necessary. Um, it was just because I'm quite an academic person, so that fit really with my kind of what I'd like to do. Um, and then beyond that, then I applied for a job as a forensic biologist. Forensic biology in particular involves kind of DNA and body fluid analysis. And, and as you start to sort of build up your expertise, then you you kind of progress into crime scene examination. So that would be going out to the initial crime scene to examine it for different evidence types. And obviously blood is a major part of that because typically a scientist will be called to um, attend a scene if there has been a violent crime. So, um, so yeah, so BPA became something that I was kind of starting to sort of move towards because I was a crime scene attending scientist effectively. And what is it exactly that blood can tell you? Because I guess you turn up at a crime scene, um, let's use an obvious one like murder, um, you know, you're looking for the sort of the story and the narrative around what's happened, aren't you? And I know you've yeah. been one of a team of people trying to put the pieces of the jigsaw together, but can you try and explain to us exactly as you enter the crime scene what you do? So if I'm called to a crime scene, then usually I'm there with a view to looking at the bloodstains that are present. And you're absolutely right. I'll be working as part of a team, but I won't necessarily be working with that team because they'll all have their own independent kind of reasons for being there, whether it's footwear or fingerprints or whatever. So my job really is I'll be given some information from the crime scene manager who's in charge of the scene. They might give me a little bit about the circumstances or activities that might have happened there for example if paramedics are attended or what, something like that or things that might impact on my assessment and then I'm kind of left to my own devices really because my view then is to take a kind of broad brush look at the blood that's present but then to start to break it down into its different elements so I might start where the body is um, and have a look at the blood staining around that individual but then I'm starting to try and get a kind of a feel for how the blood is distributed in relation to that individual or whether or not there is any independent areas that need inspection so it might suggest that an assault started somewhere else and then move to where the body's been found so it's kind of it is a narrative in terms of actions that may have taken place at the crime scene. So you're almost reenacting from the blood someone's perhaps last last movements, last actions, how they've in interacted with other individuals, whether people have moved things, whether things have been moved. And it can give you a really, oftentimes can give you a really good reconstruction of sort of that, those last moments actually. 
And of course, there's, you know, what's so interesting, and when I first met you and you were describing what you did was that it was A, something I'd never really thought about before, because why would one, really? <laughs> um, but it's sort of, you know, how you described the actual pattern of the blood. So whether it's dripped or splashed or projected, and you can tell the different types of impact, as you say, whether someone's been bludgeoned or sliced and um, apologies if this is gruesome for our listeners but I think it's really important to you know to to go there because it's so interesting um but can you explain a bit more then about you know how you how you learn whether something is dripped or splashed or you know yeah pull that out and then do you get a ruler out and sort of say well this bit is about you know 10 centimeters away from this bit and well you essentially do I mean there's a a huge criticism of BPA actually, and it's it's it's, it's slightly false, is that it's quite um like a magic art. So it's very subjective, and it's just about looking at patterns and giving an opinion. But actually, it's underpinned by quite um quite an extensive science in terms of measuring and 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 predicting how blood behaves once it leaves the body. I mean, while we've got a circulatory system that is like, you know, precisely engineered so that blood stays in the body and just circulates around us and delivers oxygen. As soon as we're injured, then that injury can um, lead to the production of bloodstain patterns. Now, how we interact with the blood after it's left the body will produce very specific types of patterns. If I deliver a blow into wet blood, what I do is I disperse that blood as little droplets. We call it blood spatter. And those droplets sort of travel through the air in, in a relatively predictable way. So blood is quite lazy. It follows the path of least resistance. If you imagine yourself, if you've got kids and it's raining and you all put your Wellington boots on and then you go out and the kid jumps in a puddle, that water is going to get splashed and dispersed onto anybody other than the person jumping in the puddle, right? So blood's exactly the same. So if I impact into wet blood by delivering a blow or whatever, then that will create blood droplets which are dispersed around that area of attack. Those droplets then produce relatively predictable patterns and it's the association between those droplets the size of the droplets which we can use to indicate the force that's been applied the alignment of droplets with respect to each other to indicate whether or not they're kind of radiating out and been dispersed quite randomly or whether those drops are all in a line those observations can be used to try and determine the actions that cause the droplets to be produced in the first place so if I bludgeon someone to death pretty viciously, multiple impacts into wet blood and there's tissue and things and blood starting to flow, that will create very spectacular impact patterns. If I have a weapon that has been swung through the air and it's blooded, then droplets of blood can leave that weapon in a line and they create a, a linear pattern on the wall and that's called cast off patterns and so each of these different features can lead you to sort of give an opinion as to how blood was deposited and that then in activity sort of in an activity sense tells us that people have been bludgeoned to death multiple times or weapons have been swung and the position of individuals when that weapon was swung so you can you can start to sort of pull all that information those measurements those observations and topple them back into a story about how the blood was created. 
Right, and I imagine, you know, if there's blood on the ceiling, for example, you know, I'm not sure what that tells you, but I imagine sort of high impact and a sort of rather vicious attack or not. Yeah, so the so arterial damage injuries can create really spectacular patterns. And I know they're horrendous and horrific to think about, but from a bloodstain pattern analyst point of view, projected blood from an artery is like the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> so so basically once the artery is breached then you no longer need to interact with it, that individual in order to create a pattern. So as soon as the artery is damaged, you can kind of step back and the pattern will produce on its own. So the blood sort of is projected out of the circulatory system under the pressure of the heart and the, and the, and the heartbeat, and it pulses out of that um, system as a column of blood. That column of blood then breaks up into individual droplets and those droplets are projected onto various surfaces. Now, if there's nothing around you and that column of blood breaks up into droplets, you can effectively get what we call arterial rain. And it literally will sound like raindrops on a window. It's absolutely catastrophic in terms of the injury, but the, the patterns that are produced are exceptionally diagnostic. Okay. So... That pressure within your circulatory system, as your blood volume starts to reduce, the pressure starts to also decrease. And so eventually you'll get to a point where there isn't enough pressure to project the blood any significant distance. And, and all of that is reflected in the pattern, which is why our observations and our eyes are, are kind of the most important tool, really, for a BPA scientist. Okay. Are you always physically at the crime scene or do you get shown photographs as well? A bit of both, really. I mean, the, the ideal is to be called to the crime scene because it's there where you, you get more of the picture. So it's like um, the, the, the more removed you are from a crime scene, the less information is available to you. It's like as soon as you take the jigsaw pieces out of the box, if you put the box to one side, then you haven't got a guide as to how to put those pieces together. So the, the scene is like the box and the picture on the front of it. So if you've got that, you're always going to be in a better position to give a more kind of holistic, complete view on something. If you've got an individual in, a, in an assault situation and they're punching someone or kicking someone, if they only catch part of the blood that's available at that moment then you're always dealing with like less information than you'd like we call it partial pattern capture because it might be that their their arm goes into the into the um impact site when they punch and they collect some blood on their sleeve but as soon as they withdraw their arm then they're taking that out of the blood environment so it means that you you're always if you're not at the crime scene, then you or you don't have every, all of their clothing or the whole picture, then you're always trying to sort of fill in the gaps a little bit. And as soon as in forensic science you start to try and fill in gaps, you're opening yourself up to risk because you might fill the gap with something that is a complete red herring or you might fill the gap with something that you learned on a previous experience. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean it applies to this experience because this experience is completely unique really so the scene is definitely 
where you're going to get the most out of me but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't do my job by looking at other people's notes if they've made good notes or if they've been taking photographs and you know if there's a good record then you can get a certain amount of information from it you perhaps just need to caveat it a little bit and say just be a bit careful here. And I guess also you're looking for how many people might have been present at a crime scene because if we stay on the okay one person's been murdered but if there's been a big fight might you find the blood of multiple people which obviously then helps the investigation and the other question would be is it part of your job to test the different types of blood to differentiate between people yeah so if other people are injured in a crime scene then to me that's my focus because um I mean, I've had a a number of cases where the amount of blood might be on the extreme. So, you know, you've got huge quantities of blood staining, which could be, it could take days, weeks, months, perhaps, to interpret every minute detail of it. But if there is something in that kind of blood environment that doesn't fit with the blood having come from the injured party or the victim, then that could lead investigatively to leads for the police so if someone else has been injured if they've cut themselves or they've been involved in a fight which has then progressed into the murder then obviously if you can pick out their blood amongst these masses of of blood staining then that's going to be useful so oftentimes that must be quite challenging right because i mean everyone's blood is red so where would you even begin to be like oh we'll test this blood because it might be different do you see what I mean if it if it's just yeah. a chaotic crime scene of just red yeah so the, I'll give you an example of a scene that I once went to where this um this chap he'd, he'd been bludgeoned to death so the, the 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 weapon was a baseball bat and it the the injuries were horrific frankly but so at, in the hallway of this house where he lived there was a huge quantity of blood stains, impact spatter and cast off and all kinds of things but leading beyond that was a trail of blood drops. These were sort of small circles on the ground. It was a um, a wooden floor. So they were just, just a little trail of drips. And then it stopped. And then as you went further into the house, the trail of drips restarted. And in areas where there were cupboards and drawers, you could see that there was really small amounts of blood on the on the handles and such like. And underneath those handles of the drawer in particular, there was a little cluster of droplets. And so those were absolutely sort of incongruous with the rest of the scene because they looked like someone with an injury had been kind of moving around and maybe they'd staunch the blood flow. And then when they'd start to do activities such as going in the drawers and having a little rake around, their injury had reopened and they'd started to re-drip blood from those injuries anyway it turned out that that blood was um the blood of the assailant so during the assault they'd become injured and then they'd gone around the house and they were um looking for valuables and and bits and bobs they were there because they were they were robbing the place but of course then this this attack had sort of become part of it and probably wasn't planned necessarily but it had developed into the assault of this gentleman the case was really sad actually because um 
they worked out that this guy stole about I think it was about twenty seven pounds or something. I can't I can't remember the precise figure, but it was a such a small amount of money for you know this catastrophic ending to this this life. And um, the guy was seen. He left the apartment and then he was seen on CCTV and he wandered a couple of doors down from the apartment and he went into a, I think it was a fish and chip shop and they had a slot machine and he put all £27 back into this slot machine and lost it all. So within seconds of, you know, killing this guy and and, and, and getting this this small amount of money for nothing, it was it was all over. It's horrendous, isn't it? Really horrendous. Like I say, the drops of blood were so important in that scene, even though, the you know, the, the crime scene manager was kind of like, Joe, you know, you should really be, shouldn't you be concentrating on this large amount of blood in the hallway? And I was like, hang on a second, I think we've got something completely different here, you know, and, 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 the, and we swabbed it and took it for DNA. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Um, I was wondering whether you get that a lot with people sort of, you know, not trying to tell you how to do your job but it's like oh look there's lots of blood over there you should be over there it was quite interesting you said that when it's like well actually I'm sort of trained in doing this and actually <laughs> that that's the obvious thing to do isn't it I don't mind being told what what to do because actually you know they know more about the scene than I do when when I arrive so if they say look we'd like you to look at this particular area then fair enough but at the end of the day I will sort of say to people can you just leave me to it for 10 minutes? Because, <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, if, if, if you can ask me lots of questions, that's not a problem, but I can't give you any sensible answers to those until I've got my head around what, what we're dealing with. So the best way for me to do that is for you just to sort of leave me to it and, and let me just collect my thoughts and get my head around it because I don't want to be prejudiced by your ideas on it. As much as I don't want to be prejudiced by my own, I have to be really careful to, to, to sort of know that my approach is as unprejudiced by all the things that I've experienced as possible. And, and, and the management of bias is really is a really important part of our approach. So if somebody says, "Oh, we think this is the murder weapon," and hands me a, you know, a, a frying pan with blood on it then that immediately is going to go into my brain as, all oh, right, well, that's the murder weapon. So I'm now, that's influencing my, potentially influencing how I look at the patterns because I'm thinking, oh, that could be from a frying pan. Whereas if I don't have that information to start with and I go in with a completely open mind that's not been kind of tainted by any preconceptions, then it probably allows me the best chance to, to do as much as I can, as objectively as I can, and then answer their questions, you know, when, when I'm ready. Yeah, and I was just wondering, because I was thinking about that sort of managing the bias, because I imagine also that in crime scenes, some can be sort of very organised and some can be disorganised crime scenes. And I imagine that some perpetrators would be trying to cover their tracks and also trying to throw investigators off the scent. Well, well the first thing that happens when you not from personal experience but the first thing that happens when you kill people and they and they bleed excessively is it creates a complete mess you know so if you're involved in an assault where you might not have quite thought it through suddenly you're you're left with an enormous pool of blood on your carpet or wherever so 
a lot of people's immediate reaction is, I really do need to clean this up. So, you know, that leads to all kinds of bizarre activities to try and clean blood up. So they might move furniture and try and mask it. They might get the bleach out and think, right, I need to really clean this out. They might burn the house down. You know, there are lots of actions that people undertake to try and cover their tracks. So the very start of a crime scene has to be expect the unexpected. I went to a scene not not that long ago, actually, where on the stairs on the way up to this flat, there was some sort of discarded clothing. And this is after the, the scene had been effectively processed by the police. So they'd recovered their initial items. And, you know, these things were just there because they were part of the the kind of the fabric of the scene really rather than necessarily suspicious in the context of the of the crime I was kind of you know I asked the crime manager do you want me to put those to one side and he said oh no we're, we're happy that those are just part of the sort of the general laundry or whatever of the of the scene but I had a look at it and it included a pair of socks and on the outside of the socks there didn't appear to be any or the the visible side of the socks didn't appear to be any blood, but when I looked inside the sock, there was blood staining, and it didn't really make sense that there should be blood on the inside, as you could see, and it turned out they were inside out, and it looked as though somebody had had these socks on their hands. So I had a look at it, I turned around, it looked like they'd been worn as a glove, so... These have been discounted as just being sort of discarded items, you know, end of the day, coming from work, take your shoes and socks off and just leave them on the stairs, as you may do. But in actual fact, they were completely integral to the to the scene. So they were recovered and the outside, as in the stuff, the side we could see was the side that would have been next to the skin. So... That's the side that we need to target for DNA effectively, because if somebody's worn them as gloves on their hand, then their DNA could be on the bit that they've sort of been in contact with. And that's exactly what happened. They were, they were examined and the samples recovered from the from what would have been the inside. And there was a DNA profile that matched somebody on the national DNA database and identified the the, the assailant. So... It, you know, your your kind of your view on it has to be completely open because you're expecting the unexpected. It's weird. And stupid question alert. I've got lots of them. Um, <laughs> when you're trying to recover the DNA of a person, because I know that, you know, often people will either break into houses with gloves on. And I presume they do that to avoid leaving fingerprints. But is DNA only recovered from parts of the body is is it blood and hair and bodily fluid in terms of transferring dna you can transfer dna in lots of different ways so um we're, we're constantly shedding dna essentially so if we touch something depending on time of day and and our shedder um capability we could leave dna or we might not leave dna just depends on the circumstances and the transfer of dna is a really kind of hot topic really I suppose we don't really understand the limits of it quite yet but it's possible that you could leave traces of DNA just simply from handling something so if you're wearing gloves because you think that that's going to protect you from being um, identified in a crime scene think again because it might not you might not leave your fingerprint but if you've been touching your face 
and you've you've got DNA on the outside of the gloves, then you could be effectively transferring that that DNA to the surfaces. Equally, you could be de- transferring DNA from somebody else onto surfaces. Right. So you know, from your partner or from people in your household, or you know, DNA is such a kind of ethereal thing that we can transfer it without really knowing that. So okay. it's, it's quite a difficult thing to interpret. And that must be difficult then at a crime scene, because if it's someone's house, then you'd be picking up DNA, I guess, of lots of different people who've been there over the course of weeks and months. I mean, it can persist really almost indefinitely. I'm not going to say it will just last forever, but just depending on what vehicle it's in. So if you've, you know, we, we, we can recover DNA from submerged bodies, for example. So so we know that it can persist through pretty inhospitable environments. So just day-to-day activity then you've got to expect that it can be there for some time and can you age blood because I imagine if you go to a crime scene it's quite recent and you're sort of looking at it um, and it's all quite new but can you age it and can you work out how long blood's been there no you can't I mean it's a fallacy that you can age it because some people say as it ages it starts to discolor and turn a, a browner color but actually, if I deposit blood on a radiator or I mix some some detergent with it or something like that, I can cause it to, to change colour and it's relatively fresh. So colour is a really difficult indicator. I will say that it's usually really fresh if it's still in liquid form. So if it's still wet, that's telling you that it's pretty, pretty recently um, deposited. Saying that, if we have large volumes of blood and um, maybe it's been deposited on plastic or something like that. It can stay in liquid form for sometimes days. I can attend scenes and I might maybe move a carrier bag or something and underneath there is sort of wet, sticky blood. And and I know it's not been freshly deposited because the crime scene's been, you know, under police control for, for a number of days and I've, I've not attended until maybe day two or three. So it just depends on the conditions and the environment really and how do you out of interest on a sort of personal level how do you or how did you in the earlier parts of your career prepare yourself for your first real crime scene because I've always wondered about that because I imagine when you're studying your um you know people will mock up crime scenes and you're learning through the classroom well how does anyone prepare you for your first murder crime scene for example I'm not sure I can remember any preparation. I know that sounds absolutely horrendous, but um, the thing is that I think if if you're so sort of um, motivated by maybe the science or the approach or the, the job, you start to sort of focus on that rather than maybe the the other aspects of it. You're almost detached. You're sort of just looking at it from a sort of AD. Yeah professional how do I solve this I think I am and I hope that doesn't sound like really really harsh or or arrogant because I've never I've never really felt personally that I've that I'm affected by these scenes even though I know that I've seen some pretty horrendous you know um scenes I mean some some of the cases have been when you think about it, you think, crikey, that's horrific. And if I see um, programmes on the telly where somebody is injured or, you know, there's some there's some sort of 
depiction of somebody being injured, I can get quite squeamish. So it really is a bit of a bit of an odd thing that I could go to some a scene where maybe you know somebody's head's been chopped off or they've been dismembered or you know things like that, and I don't recall being upset by it or squeam squeamish about it. So I think it must just be the process of it that kind of takes over my brain and I focus in on that, really. I, I will say that, and again, I don't, it sounds really contrived when you say it out loud, but I always sort of give a nod to, if there's a victim there, I will always say, you know, not out loud, but just give a recognition that I'll do my best kind of thing and just try and give them a, a nod that, you know, I, I will work it out if I can and and I, I don't know whether that's just part of a process that is for me makes me feel better I don't know where it came from it just seems something that I've, I kind of I feel I feel I should do that mm. you know but um I've done a few scenes where animals are injured and again it's going to sound really odd that that affects me more than if a, there's an individual there and it you know you kind of think what a weirdo <laughs> If I see a dog or, you know, especially if, if an animal has been sort of in, encapsulated in the violence, you know, because people use animals to kind of threaten or, you know, in abuse situations. So there are situations where an animal might have been, you know, mistreated as or has been killed as part of the assault. That sometimes makes me a little bit more upset than perhaps looking at an individual that's you know been really horrendously mutilated and it's it's weird that isn't it it is but I, I mean let's be honest the whole topic's quite weird so, <laughs> you know I don't I don't know what's um yeah I mean it's it's fascinating and actually how um I was going to ask about the animals how often do you see that because again that's not really something I guess I'd sort of thought a huge amount about no I mean it's it's not commonplace, but it's certainly not uncommon either. I mean, um, the thing about pets is that they're they're usually pretty controlled in a scene. So that means that, you know, if something horrendous goes on, like there's a fire set or something like that, then then pets can become kind of inadvertently caught up in that, can't they? And they might become overcome by smoke or whatever. So I guess I had heard about it, particularly with domestic violence and stalking. Yeah. Um, you know, leaving a dead cat on the doorstep or sort of horrific yeah. things to think about in a way of sort of trying to terrorise. That um, emotional yeah. kind of um, approach to violence. And, and you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty horrific, but equally, like I say, I've, I've had cases where, you know, people have been dismembered and packaged up into little bags and put in freezers. And um, I had a guy once and um, he... he sort of fried up the brain of his victim and he was you know and and you think crikey these are very you know extreme circumstances to be involved with but yeah at the end of the day the job is just to find out who did it what happened and 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 be as robust as you can in terms of presenting your evidence really yeah and on that note um because obviously the blood pattern analysis as we talked about is sort of one one chunk of um, a big job so where does then does the pr criminal profiling come just go alongside that or what where do you fit into the big big picture 
Yeah, so it'd be part of an investigation. I mean, if, if you if you think about um, if there's a some sort of incident that's taken place, then there'll be different priorities to investigate in that particular situation. If there's been blood spilled, then obviously BPA will probably become part of that kind of environment. But my role is kind of to support and to collaborate with the rest of the people involved. So if, for example, um, I'm looking at a pattern, I might say, well, we need a number of samples from this particular area or this distribution of bloodstains. Those samples will then go off for DNA analysis. So I'm then working with a DNA scientist who will generate profiles from them. Um, and then that comes back into the into the the sort of the main river or the stream of forensic thinking and and everything is kind of building up a picture so it's definitely not just me doing my thing in isolation you have to collaborate with everybody else to try and sort of reassess priorities define the best strategy because it might be that I go thinking I'm going to solve this <laughs> and the pathologist is there thinking this is my ticket, you know, and so, you know, and it might be that there's a case where I go and I'm like, do you know what, I can't really help you much here. I can tell you about the blood patterns, but actually your main aim should be the footwear marks or the fingerprints or, you know, so my job's as much as about stepping back as it is a stepping up, really, because yeah. there's no point in me going, you know, I'm brilliant and I'm going to solve this because at the end of the day, it's a big team that, with a with a limited budget usually so you've got to prioritize it you know sensibly so it sounds like there's a bit of competitiveness then sort of within the crime scene um investigation is that it's like right the pathologist is like i'm gonna get this one and then you come in like, i want to be the one to solve this one and then you've maybe got the profiler who is, is <laughs> that that goes on or is it kind of obviously professional competitiveness where you oh yeah of course it's professional competitiveness but you know I mean at the end of the day it's really annoying when the pathology solves it <laughs> <laughs> you kind of want to be it don't you of course you do but yeah. no I mean at the end of the day the job is to recover evidence and present that to the jury to the court effectively so you know it, a little bit of banter is it goes a long way I think but I think that the most powerful cases that I've been involved with have been those where we've had kind of cross-disciplinary collaboration. Because at the end of the day, if if you can work together and get an outcome, that is going to be stronger than just one sort of seam of evidence driving the case forward. And also... At the start of an investigation, you never know the other side of the story. So when when you're called to a scene and the police say, you know, there's been a murder, of course they don't say that, but there's been a, there's been a murder, you go to the scene, then the job is to find out who the murderer is. Now, when the suspect or the, the alleged perpetrator is identified, they've got an account that needs to be evaluated you know, they might say, well, I didn't I didn't kill that individual. I didn't beat that individual. I didn't kick that person. But I did deliver first aid and try and resuscitate. So, you know, we now need to look at their side of things and to try and evaluate whether blood staining on them is more in keeping with them having bludgeoned somebody to death or whether 
their account, them delivering first aid is is perfectly reasonable. You know, so when you're driven at the start of an investigation, you're in a different mindset to where you are at the end of an investigation, which is more evaluating the evidence in light of the accounts that are available. And that really is the golden ticket for a forensic scientist. Right. And that must get complicated when the perpetrator, so take domestic violence, the perpetrator is attacking someone and in self-defense, they never saw it coming, but, you know, they are being attacked and they end up killing the person who is trying to harm them. Yeah. And of course, they probably want to flee the scene because then they have done something terrible. They never thought they'd do, but they had to do it in order to save their own lives. Yeah, it's very difficult to address self-defence from a forensic point of view, from certainly my point of view, because, you know, the, the opportunity for blood transfer, if you're admitting to having been involved in an assault with someone, is the same whether you're working in self-defence or whether you're working in as, as an aggressor. Similarly, I can't um, address consent, you know, so in a sexual assault case. So there are limits to what we can do. And I think it's really important to kind of outline those from the start. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not a magic brush that can just kind of go over a case and say, right, that's that sorted. There'll, there'll always be a scale of kind of evaluation and, and there'll be some cases where I can discount almost entirely somebody's account and there'll be cases where it's it's absolutely impossible to split apart you know the the allegation versus the defense alternative and there'll be some cases where everything in the defense alternative is entirely correct and and I'll support the defense and it's not a case of going in saying right I am a prosecution scientist I just have to utterly evaluate based on the information that's available at the time and do you always get told at the end of a case because you come in and you sort of have a look at the blood spatter and give your expert advice do you always get told when someone has been convicted do you follow the case the whole way through or do you sometimes not no sometimes I'll never hear about it again I mean I will give evidence quite frequently, just simply because of the nature of the casework that I do now. I do go to court quite a lot, compared to perhaps when I was a more junior kind of our reporting officer. But now, sometimes I'll leave the court having given evidence and I'll hear nothing about it from that moment on. Sometimes they're in the newspaper and, you know, maybe somebody will send me a link and say, is this the case you were working on or something like that? And they're like, all oh, right, yeah, there you go. But at the end of the day, I'm, that's kind of not my job. Of course, I've got an interest in it, but my job is not whether or not they're guilty or not. It's kind of just providing a kind of a snapshot on what the science means at the time. Mm. And I'm also interested, going back to sort of how on an individual and personal level you cope with um, your job. So you come home from work, you've seen something really disturbing, and, you know, you sit down with your family or friends and do you feel there's a bit of responsibility actually to not tell them exactly what you've seen? Because actually it's quite normalised to you because I, I certainly know I do that with my line of work. And you kind of like blah, blah, blah. And you sort of say it off the cuff and you think, God, that was actually quite irresponsible because they're maybe the people yeah. you just aren't equipped to be able to hear some of the things that you see. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't tend to talk about cases. I mean, certainly 
not when they're live and ongoing yeah. because there's a responsibility not to. Do you have close friends that obviously I'm sure you've got lots of colleagues that you can have a real kind of chat, a gruesome chat with them about it and a kind of offload? Yes. Yeah, so there, well, there are two aspects because whenever I come back from a crime scene or having done any kind of interpretation, I've got a responsibility to make sure that that's that's right or wrong. So we do a debrief. So it means that I'll sit down with a colleague and I'll talk through my findings and show them photographs and say, oh, look at this. And what did you think about this? And all that kind of stuff. And at the end of it, you know, we'll come to some sort of agreed opinion on it. The very end of that process really is, are there any health and welfare sort of issues? So there's an opportunity then to say, well, do you know what? I didn't like that part of it. So, you know, maybe chat to somebody or whatever. That's one side of it. And then when I come home and I'll say, right, oh, my goodness, I went to this scene today. It was absolutely incredible. There was an X, you know, an arterial pattern. You know, you don't see them very often. It was amazing. <laughs> then then usually what happens is everybody at home says, what are we having for our tea? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm just a bit busy yeah. right now. So yeah. like <laughs> and they're in absolutely no way interested. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, oh, OK, well, fair enough. But I think... They, you've got to be kind of realistic don't you you know at the end yeah. of the day nobody wants to hear about somebody else's job yeah exactly I, I you know it's when people talk to me about sort of hedge funds and stuff and I'm just like I have no idea what you're talking about I can't process it in my mind what what you're on about the thing that happens to me quite a lot is people will say oh did you see so and so on the television there was some blood in it what did you think and I'd be like well I didn't see it or you know I did see it and I thought it was completely unrealistic or whatever it might be but yeah. so people tend to talk about television shows more than they do you know actual crime scenes I guess and get my opinion on that yeah and so if anyone's listening and they actually have an interest in becoming a forensic scientist or you know getting into the line of work that you do I know you love your job so I'm not even going to ask that question, but would you sort of encourage more people to come forward to become blood pattern analysts? Is it is it a job that we need more young up and coming people to go into? Oh, 100 percent. You need up and coming people to come into all kinds of um, professions, don't you? But I mean, the, the thing is that I don't know whether people remember this, but there was a program called Indelible Evidence and Ludovic Kennedy um, presented it. It was probably in the 80s, I think. Anyway, I was, a, I was a, a kid then, but me and my mum watched this programme and it was about forensic science. And in fact, it was almost like iconic cases of the time. And he looked at how forensic science could help to solve these cases. As a, and I don't know what it is about those, those programmes, but they kind of stuck in my mind. And from that moment on, I wanted to be a, a forensic scientist. So my parents had to go to school and sort of allow me to do sciences, three sciences at, you know, at school and as options and stuff. So it was really weird how sort of single-minded I was about it. And and it just, as it happened, worked out that I quite enjoy what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine doing every all that training and, 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 and education and then getting to be a forensic scientist and going, oh my goodness, I don't actually enjoy this at all. But anyway, so, that was... <laughs> I'm suddenly a bit squeamish and I don't yeah. like... So, so I don't know whether or not people are so driven in terms of their career choices. Perhaps they are. And I'm sure that there are a number of people that just think, do you know what? I want to be a forensic scientist. All I will say is that 
it is really competitive to get into now. I mean, when I was applying for jobs, you know, there was, I think there was like tens, maybe even a hundred people applied for the same job at the start. And now there are probably, there could be several hundreds, you know, of, of applicants wow. for a particular position. So it is really competitive. How do you get into being a forensic scientist? Well, you just have to kind of plug it, plug at it and and, and hope that you get a, a lucky break. I often say it's, it's better to be lucky than good, actually. What I will say is that at every step of your sort of decision making, you need to try and do things that you enjoy. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you if you do a degree in forensic science because you think that's going to get me a job, but you actually only enjoy biology or, you know, you're not a chemist or something like that, I would tend to move you and say, maybe consider doing a biology degree rather than necessarily focusing on forensics. Because then you get that kind of background and foundation that you can use in other other areas. Because like I say, you will never open a newspaper and see a job advert saying BPA scientist wanted. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, when I finished university, I went to um, the job centre to, to find a forensic scientist job. And um, they had an old directory in those days. It was in like a lever arch file, the jobs that are available. And they opened the folder for me to look for forensic scientist jobs under the under P because they thought it began with PH. Okay. So, you know, so kind of like it, it, it was not heard of them, but now it's so in the psyche of us from, you know, Silent Witness and CSI and Dexter. There's such a huge sort of draw to it, but it's a really, really competitive field. And I think it's interesting what you said about um, carry on doing what you think you enjoy, because certainly throughout my career, and I'm lucky enough to have found my passion and I work in the area that I'm passionate about as you mm. when I first met you I thought my god this is a really gruesome subject and that woman really enjoys talking about blood <laughs> uh, and you can't really fake that can you you know you meet so many people throughout your working life and you know some people are just so electrified by what they do and um and if you're lucky enough to be a person who has stumbled across that then yeah I mean, what are the chances, really? Like I say, it was this guy in Miami who said, you know, if you if you want to take the course, come come back and do the course. And I mean, you know, now now I I deliver training to people from all over the world. I mean, I'm I'm just so fortunate, and I just think, crikey! And when I when I came down to London, so I worked in um, with the Forensic Science Service in in London, and um, my my arrival there coincided with with the guy who was a lead um, bloodstain pattern uh, scientist and he was sort of moving towards retirement and and again you know I just kind of on his coattails I sort of, he, he pulled me through and he he, he handed me he, he gave me his training materials and sort of handed over the the baton a little bit and you know and then I took his training materials and I develop them a little bit and now I sort of you know deliver those again you know to to lots of different people and I just thought you know the timing of that mm. you know and and this guy you know I, I'd read newspaper articles where he'd been involved in you know these really infamous cases and so then to be sort of sat opposite him and being you know coached and mentored by him 
it's just just astonishing really i can't i can't get over how fortunate <laughs> fortunate i've been so when people ring me or email me and say look i'm really interested in bpa and you know i really want to get into it then if i've got a spot on my course you know i will do everything i can to to put them on it because i just think you know that that little little inkling of a of a of a chance that i had years ago and suddenly I'm, you know, I'm doing my dream job. So if I can give that to anybody else, then go for it. Go for yeah. it. Well, we could carry on talking all day, I think, because I'm so fascinated in what you do. But if people are interested in your training, where do they go? How do they access it? Is it accessible to... Yep. So, um, well, you can you'll find me on the internet. So um, I've got a, a website. We'll put um, all, the, all your information in the footnotes. Yeah, so... I just get in touch and um, you can join my, I, I deliver various types of training. So, um, you know, professional level training, if you're in the industry or um, I do a lot of um, kind of engagement activities. So I might give um, talks and stuff. So if you're interested in sort of getting a potted history of BPA, then you can probably come to one of the events that we run. So just get in touch, really, and we'll um, try and accommodate. Great. Well, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure and slightly gruesome at the same time. But <laughs> thank you so much. Not a problem. It's been good to chat to you. Please listen next week for the third and final part of our mini-series when I speak to Peter Dawson, Director at the Prison Reform Trust, about procedural justice within a prison context. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.